Well, hello everyone again. Uh, thanks for downloading this episode of the podcast. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to do something a little bit special here, just so I can keep the episodes flowing in a reasonably regular way. Uh, so in June uh, 2017, uh, Blue Yard Capital, which is based out of Berlin, held uh, an industry academic sort of day on quantum computing uh, in Munich. And they recorded everything that went on there. There were a bunch of panel discussions and a bunch of talks. Now, uh, we're really lucky here in the fact that Blue Yard has agreed um, to release the audio uh, as part of the McQuanic series. So very, very big thanks to them. Uh, and it was a great day um, for everyone who was there. So we'll do one of these every couple of weeks, basically just the panel sessions uh, that people participated in. And uh, I hope you enjoy them. So thank you. My name is Simon Devitt. Uh, I'm a founder of a quantum consultancy company called HBAR. I'm also the chief science officer of a, of a new startup called Turing. Um, and I'm delighted to be asked to, to chair this panel on uh, the quantum application stack and how it might influence uh, development within the private sector and revolutionize the world. So first of all, um, we do have representatives uh, from both the startup community, uh, more established uh, corporate uh, representatives and from the academic community. And I thought initially I'd just run down the panel and let everyone do a minute or so uh, introducing themselves and, and what their primary focus is. Uh, so I suppose we'll start with Martin uh, down the end from Microsoft. Sure. Thanks, Simon. Uh, I'm Martin Rodler with Microsoft Research. Uh, let me just begin by saying it's a very exciting time to be working in quantum computing. You see a lot of emerging devices. We've just heard about the Google effort. There are several other um, kind of companies and other outfits that try to build a quantum computer. Some of them allow you to actually play with it. I personally work on, on the algorithm side. I try to find problems where we can, be, we can have a, a, a tremendous speed up over what you can do classically. Um, of course, historically, the first such problem was factoring, which has implications in security and privacy. But we're going to move beyond that and find, try to find problems that are more of an immediate business value. Um, you heard by, in Alan's talk about chemistry. We have a big chemistry effort going on at Redmond, we have Matthias Troyer just recently joined our group. He's one of the leading uh, classical experts in the topic. Um, we have material science applications. We are looking into machine learning applications. That's a kind of a new area. And the applications are not as clearly defined. Um, on my, like personally, I'm interested in costing algorithms. So you want to kind of, at this point, it's, everything is unclear. What's the final gate set, what we can actually support, but you can still even at this point, make some statements about how big the machine needs to be roughly to run some applications. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. Try to build the software that allows us to do it. And we kind of cost out the number of gates, the number of qubits. So that, that's kind of part of the Microsoft approach towards quantum computing. Great. Thanks, Martin. Uh, Matt from QCWare. Sure. My name is Matt Johnson. I'm the uh, CEO of QCWare. We are a quantum computing software company based in Palo Alto, California. I guess the, the main points to think about with us is, first of all, we're focused on applications and the application sets we care about are quantum machine learning, finance, and search. And search for us in the broadest sense of the word means finding a needle in the haystack for graph-based or network-based problems. Um, another characteristic of our firm is that we're specifically focused at enterprise problems and making sure that the software we're developing is uh, reachable and usable for novice enterprise users. So the composition of our team reflects that. Um, we're computer scientists, 
quantum algorithm people and, um, and physicists. So we work together as a team to build the technology stack that sits on top of the bare metal or, or the API that the hardware vendor will expose um, up through the application side. Right, thanks, Mac. Uh, Michael from QBranch. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Michael Brett. I'm the CEO of a company called QBranch. Uh, we're headquartered in Washington, DC, and have a, a development team based in Australia. Um, we're a data analytics company. Um, the bulk of our business is focused in applying machine learning and data science to uh, challenging enterprise problems. But we see quantum computing as a long-term strategic differentiator that we want to be involved in. So. Uh, we've been investing uh, some of our equity and some of our, our partnerships into understanding the quantum computing landscape, uh, the sort of applications that might be enabled by quantum computing that would have an impact on our existing business. And hopefully those two business areas over time will, will merge together and we'll introduce our, our classical analytics customers to quantum and our quantum customers to the analytics work that we do uh, on the classical side. Uh, so pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Great, thanks Michael. And Gabriel from Volkswagen. Hi everybody, I'm Gabriele Compostella from the Volkswagen Data Lab here in Munich. Uh, Volkswagen meaning one of those companies that we heard is going to be disrupted by <laughs> new <laughs> technologies. So um, the Data Lab here um, for which I work for is basically a center of excellence uh, for everything related to data analytics, advanced analytics within the company Volkswagen. That means we work with all the group brands um, that are owned under the umbrella uh, company of the Volkswagen Group. Our idea is to bring together business experts, uh, data analysts, technology experts, and try to build data-driven innovation for the company. As part of this effort, we focus on different areas, like, uh, again, big data analytics, machine learning, deep learning, but we also have some research topics, uh, like, uh, that go into the direction, for example, of natural language processing and chatbots, are, uh, but one of the research topics we are working on is also quantum quantum computing to try to prepare us for the uh, new revolutions coming and the new products that we will be able to create with that. So that's why I'm here and thanks for the invitation. Great, thank you. And finally, Michael Bremner from UTS in Sydney and the CQCT now. That's right. Yeah. Um, so as you've just said, I, I work for two research centres, uh, both based in Australia. I work at the uh, University of Technology Sydney's uh, Centre for Quantum Software and Information which is a research center which is focused on uh, the theoretical aspects of quantum computing. So that goes everywhere from blue sky research into the mathematics underlying quantum algorithms, all the way through to uh, working with teams of experimentalists on developing benchmarking and applications for their devices. I do that in part with the Center for Quantum Computer Technology, Center for Quantum Computing and Communication Technology, uh, which is an Australian government funded research center. Great. Um, so what I thought I'd do is try to tailor off from what Alan did, uh, but try and give it a, a little more um, details. So first of all, I'd like to, to get Mick, and maybe Martin might want to jump in on this, uh, to sort of give us an outline of, of sort of the, the quantum algorithm and the quantum application landscape. Because we've talked, uh, we've heard from Alan, uh, there's two very important regimes here. There are things that are non-error corrected quantum algorithms and what can be done there all the way up until fully quantum error corrected universal algorithms, which, as was mentioned, is, is gonna take some time. So, Mick, if you wanna talk about sort of this area a little bit, and then Martin might wanna jump in of some of the work that Microsoft's done to try and find few qubit applications and try to get around not requiring error correction. Okay, so that's 
going to give me a whole history of quantum computing in 30 seconds. Uh, but um, all right, so I guess it's important to understand um, that quantum algorithms development has come, has been going on now for since the early 90s. And to begin with, it was really a mathematical topic. It's a topic of like studying these mathematical structures. And it was done very hypothetically. You know, imagine if you had this thing called a quantum computer, which maybe one day someone develops. And people are focused on developing algorithms then for universal quantum computers that work, you know, ideally with error correction and everything like that. In recent years, this has really shifted. And I think Microsoft's played a big role in this, as has Google and a few others, to um, as hardware has got like much better to the point where we're, we're now actually, you know, talking about building really interesting devices. Um, we've focused a bit more on near-term applications. Because now we can actually see the thing we need to develop for. We can talk about what is the fidelity, what is the architecture, what's it going to look like. We're now developing applications much more specifically suited to these sort of tasks. Now, as was alluded to by Alan, um, like we're approaching this regime, which people call sort of this regime of quantum computational supremacy, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it, it can be a sort of vaguely defined term, um, which means we're heading towards building devices which, in principle, could have the capability to, for very specific applications, um, outperform every classical quantum computer, oh, sorry, classical computer. Um, to begin with, these devices, these like applications are very academic, would be the way I'd put it. And the way that they've been developed has been to, you know, find some mathematical leverage, which, you know, lies down in this, you know, the deep sort of structure of some problem and then build that up to uh, talk about an actual sort of application or a benchmarking tasks that a device can do, um, which is quite different from the sort of traditional way of doing development for enterprise in an industry. Um, and maybe each. Yeah, very much agree uh, with those points. At Microsoft, we're of course observing very closely the, the developments around quantum sup computational supremacy, which means kind of you try to separate the classical world from the quantum world and find a problem that you cannot solve on a classical machine, period. So the trouble with it, in a sense, is that none of these problems are re seem really useful, whereas we, of course, want to set our sights to problems that we, we care about, that are the hardest problems people care about, and we cannot solve them in, in any reasonable amount of time. Even if we covered the entire planet with computers, we could not solve them. And one area where we found such problems are in computational chemistry. So understanding chemical reactions is very important. We heard in, in Alan's keynote about the problem of um, nitrogen fixation, for instance. It's done currently, like harvesting nitrogen from the, from the air is done currently with a very inefficient efficient process called the Haber-Bosch process, which um, is, like, happens under high pressures, high temperatures, and you need catalysts for this, and has a very relatively low, low yield. So um, a quantum computer could help us, it has been shown on, on a piece of paper that it could, could help us kind of innovate there and find better catalysts that help us having higher yield for the process. Of course, now it, it kind of, you have to ask several questions. First of all, how large has a quantum computer, does it have to be to actually implement this? Like how many qubits, how many operations will you have to do? And kind of, can you really solve the optimization problem of finding a catalyst and then implementing? All these things are um, kind of, we have done some baby steps towards that. We costed out initially that you will need around 100 logical qubits 
to uh, understand the process of nitrogen fixation, the way nature does it, using a, um, um, a molecule not called nitrogenase. And nobody really understands how nature does it. But uh, having a quantum computer, we could at least uh, kind of have a chance of understanding it. And there it's maybe interesting for, for, the lay, for the lay persons to know, like one of the key applications is just simulating physics. So we try to build this machine, this incredibly contrived machine, and one of the key applications is just simulating other physical systems, and that's one of the, the killer applications, presumably, is just to do that. Um, that if, if we have, to have such a machine, we can apply it to problems in material science, maybe find better ways to construct superconducting materials that would superconduct at higher temperatures. That would be a really, really big deal breaker. Um, we could, we could um, hopefully have kind of the catalysts I mentioned. In machine learning, we could hopefully uh, use a quantum computer to train models in a better way. There are early indications that that might be possible. When you look at deep networks, um, you can model it by Boltzmann machines, and it's known that a quantum computer can help train Boltzmann machines in a better way. So better is kind of tricky to define in that context. It means specifically that a method that it's classically used based on stochastic gradients can be approved on by having a better quality gradient in a, like if you have a quantum computer, you can have the kind of, you can point in the right direction, make a step so, in, the, in the gradient. So a yeah. few very domain specific applications, that's kind but of- But I think one of the key words that you said in there is when quantum chemistry, you're talking about 100 logical qubits. Yes. Error correction is still going to be required at this level. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if I can talk to Gabriel about certainly the interest of these bigger companies such as Volkswagen, I mean, where do they come in on this um, in regards to, to what they're looking for? Are they hoping um, that there are going to be applications out there at this sort of 50 qubit to 100 qubit level, not logical qubit, qubit level? Well, I think we are taking uh, the, the proactive approach that Alan mentioned before. So we are trying to see what's already out there and how we could use it for realistic problems. And uh, we had an experience uh, just this year, a few months ago, we, we were able to try our first, uh, let's say, quantum application. Um, I, didn't have, I don't know if uh, I qualify as a quantum developer, so I didn't have the gut to stand up before, but basically that's what we did. Uh, we had a partnership together with our colleagues at D-Wave, and we tried to set, test their system. So not at 100 qubit scale, but at 1,000 to 2,000. And what we did was, with a small team, locked uh, in a room uh, for two months and a half without pizza, and <laughs> to, we tried to build something useful out of it. So we tried to, to, to ask ourselves, okay, so we have a real quantum computer here that is available. This is the top of uh, te the technology that we have today. So can we use it to solve a real problem that matters for our industry? Something along the lines that was discussed before. And the, things that, the thing that we did was we created a small application that ran on the D-Wave and that uh, could uh, optimize the traffic flow. So optimal routing for many cars on the street. Um, we had some very interesting results that were presented at CBIT this year. We are still working on that, but the outcome of this exercise was that, yes, there is something that we can already do. There is something that already works with the current uh, quantum technology. Of course, the limit is, uh, is the scale at which we can push uh, this problem. We are now able sorry, to, uh, let's say, uh, perform this optimization in a, in a few seconds, so from 5 to 15, for a few hundred cars on the street, and we can select between multiple possible routes the optimal route for each and every car uh, based on the behavior of all the other cars. So, uh, yeah, so this is, for example, one of the possibilities of uh, some new 
let's say, applications that are not common in our uh, industry yet that could be differentiators for our company. And we are still, of course, exploring other possible applications that are related to optimization in many other aspects of the things that we do. But I mean, in the case of how, how Volkswagen look at this, this problem itself, is it, do you reach out to the quantum companies and say, hey, we're interested, what do you suggest? Or do you have your own in-house teams who have some understanding or some expertise um, to sort of then go, well, this might work for us. And so we'll reach out. All right, so uh, of course we are not able to do this all ourselves. We have worked in a close partnership with D-Wave to, to perform this exercise. We are also gaining some, some education ourselves. I'm a physicist as background, so I sort of understand some of the technical problems, not all, of course, uh, but, and, and my colleagues too are trying to, to, to learn more, but let's say we are, we are um, going through uh, two different paths. One is to be proactive, again, with respect to the evolution of the technology. The other one is trying to build within the company already the competencies that will be needed once uh, quantum computing becomes really uh, commercially available and uh, more spread as it is right now. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed quite a bit is that a lot of these companies are looking to develop competency within this area. So Matt and, and Michael, feel free to sort of jump in on each other. Um, you guys, your company sort of work in this software space, it's sort of these, these non-error corrected uh, levels um, to try and consult with people or de develop these applications with, with various stakeholders. So how do you guys tackle, I mean, you both work with financial sectors a little bit um, as well. So how do you approach that again? Do they come to you or do you go to them? Yeah, uh, so bu building on the, on the experience from Volkswagen, that, that is the style of project that we typically get engaged in where uh, a company sees quantum computing on the horizon that's coming up towards them. They're picking up signals like Google are putting out today that hardware will soon be ready in, in a uh, tractable time frame to start to think about uh, this technology. And so organizations are seeking to understand what the impact is going to be on their business. And one of the troubles with quantum computing is that the specific application in that business is non-intuitive and non-obvious um, in, a, in an initial meeting. So you, you need to spend some time with that company to understand their particular processes, where they're spending a lot of computational power already, or what are the problems that they're uh, avoiding because it's too computationally intensive, and how quantum computing might be able to have some impact there. I think it's important to uh, consider the importance of emulators of quantum computers. So these are systems that run on classical machines but emulate the behavior of a quantum computer at least to some level of fidelity and to some number of qubits. And that provides an inexpensive, accessible way for an, an enterprise to start to develop those capabilities and skills and build the awareness of quantum computing and, and demystify it uh, in, in a practical way. So getting hands-on with an emulator uh, is something that, that can be done uh, ahead of the hardware development. And then once you've got applications in mind, then test those on the hardware as and when it becomes available. So I agree with what Michael said. I would add a couple of points, um, and I think this applies to any member of the quantum computing software ecosystem. The most important thing to do is to be working very closely with enterprises, regardless of the sector they're in, and, and there's this amount of creativity that's even more important than technical knowledge of a, the hardware topology or, or any other aspect of quantum computing. And it's that ability to map 
the problem the enterprise has and, and to have a quantum representation of that to enable it to be run on a quantum processor. And that sounds like a very technical thing to do, and it is, but it's actually, it requires an equal measure of creativity. And so when we, I guess, tactically think as a company where we want to focus our time, clearly there's a, a better um, scientific argument to say let's focus on quantum chemistry, quantum, quantum materials, quantum, quantum physics, because those data sets are already in a quantum state and they can run kind of natively on a quantum processor. But we're actually taking a bet, a very clear bet that the hardware vendors, the ones that are in this room, so that's IBM, Google, D-Wave, Rigetti, we're taking a bet that the engineers there are gonna be able to pull forward usable early generation quantum processors in a fairly short period of time. So we are not just doing that kind of uh, application set, but finance, um, working with D.E. Shah, one of our investors, working with Airbus on engineering design and test problems. Those are areas that may be somewhat under addressed right now, but we're taking the bet that quantum processors are gonna be more powerful sooner than the uh, sort of the conventional wisdom suggests they are. And so that's really where we wanna put our footprint down. So, I mean, how do you, I mean, few qubit quantum algorithms that have a marketable impact, something that, that is demonstrably better than what we can do classically, has an application that can be marketed or commercialised. I mean, this has been the holy grail of the academic community to a certain extent for the last 20 years and still really doesn't exist yet. So, Michael, you talked about emulators. Now, I mean, emulators only take you so far. Um, arguably, you can do a lot of it on pen and paper. Uh, once you get to 20, 30 qubits, and then when you're pushing past 30 qubits, you find your classical computer can't keep up. So within what QCWare and QBranch are doing, I mean, how much of it is app development um, at this sort of non-error-corrected level? So we're going to have a really tough time as a community if we can't get uh, quantum programming into the hands of classical computer scientists and software engineers. And to make it normal for a graduate from computer science from Stanford who's never thought about a quantum computer before, to make it normal for that computer scientist to pick up a library and start to use it uh, and think about it as a classical problem. So that means building out the libraries and the toolkits and the emulators that exist within a, a normal development environment that, that can run on premises at their location, whether it's at a financial institution or university or wherever, to get access to the data sets that they have. And so for, for our company, at least, the way we think about our role here is to do kind of the top-down work. So to look at the applications that uh, might be relevant and to drill downwards in building out those libraries and compilers and toolkits that, that go into the hands of regular developers. While the hardware teams and the people close to them do the bottom up, build the bare metal, the, uh, the control systems and the, the abstraction layers on top of that. And so uh, building out that workforce that has some understanding of quantum computing and can use those libraries, that is one of the enablers to making sure we can find the applications down the track. And just really quickly to add to that, um, you brought up a very interesting point. You talked about, for circuit model machines at least, let's talk about adiabatic or annealing processors mm -hmm. in a second. You talk about the lack of um, uh, development, so to speak. I mean, it's a so, hard thing to do, so, as Mikkel said. Right, and, and um, certainly there are you know, six or seven quantum algorithms that have provable end-to-end -end speed up potential. Um, the issue is those algorithms were developed in the scientific and research community 
and they really weren't expanded or put to, put to the test with real data sets. So I think the interesting challenge will be to take these algo primitives that are out there and to mash them up against enterprise problems and to force the algo community, the practical algo community, to try to shoehorn those real problems onto those algo primitives. I mean, I mean, those algorithms that do have provable speed up, unfortunately, do require extensive error correction to implement. Um, sorry, look like you uh, want to jump in. Yeah, I, I was just going to. I was just going to jump in and say. I mean, it's really important to understand that quantum computing speed up is. It's not just a matter of. Um, which I think everyone here agrees with, but it, it's important people understand it's not just a matter of something going faster. So it's really hard to map problems um, into a subroutine, which is, you know, will deliver you a speed up. And, and it really deeply depends on, in some ways, the architecture, um, the way in which, uh, especially when talking about near-term devices, like not everything's gonna work perfectly. Um, and sometimes those imperfections can swallow your speed up completely or, it turns out that you know a classical computer can do just as good a job. So this is a thing which I think everyone on stage here is is kind of focused on trying to get to the bottom of from different perspectives. I think it's interesting that people are looking at sort of enterprise development and how do we map those problems um, onto the existing subroutines. And from an academic perspective, there's really a lot of work on finding those points of differ differentiation between classical and quantum computers and trying to leverage that up. Um, I think that's, yeah, it's a bit of a summary of what I think is going on. I mean, it is the interesting approach of Microsoft is, is the, and Martin, you want to, you're going to have to say it real quick because we're getting short on time, in kind of this anionic, so th this method that people might have heard of called topological quantum computing is a bit of a distinction. There are topological quantum error correction codes which work on qubits, but what Microsoft's approach is is these systems with intrinsic uh, topological protection and it's a bit of a gamble because it would in one sense mitigate the error correction requirements but it's also based on particles that uh, don't really exist yet. Right, yeah okay let me try to say that in a few <laughs> remaining minutes. Um, so for the problem of decoherence has already been mentioned, that's a very tough problem that the quantum computer has to deal with. Intuitively it's like kind of like a negative interest rate, like if you put money in the bank and after a year you have instead of $100 you have $99 and then it keeps compounding the negative interest rate, right? And you can see that quickly that, that kills the computer if you have a number of steps you want to do, it just drops exponentially the amount of signal you get from the machine and it makes it hard to scale up a quantum computer, it's as simple as that. So there are several ways out of that. We could just go bare and work with the bare qubits and hope that our circuits never have to be very deep. And that might work with the great proposals on quantum variation eigensolvers that actually might give you a good, good answers. The other approach is to add error correction, which comes with overhead. So you have some things like classically you have redundancy, triple redundancy or stuff like that. We have that in the quantum world too, but our factors are larger. They're not three, they're maybe seven in the most optimistic case, maybe 10 to the four in the more pessimistic case. So Microsoft has set its side on a particular approach where we try to build a sort of a self-correcting memory. So classically, you know, like hard disks, for instance, they're pretty resilient, right? If one of the magne mag 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 magnetic spins flips, it flips back because the neighboring spins just force it back. So there are similar things in um, the topological insulators, so structures that have topological materials, semiconductors, topological materials. In quant fractional quantum Hall effects, they have been observed. Um, they show 
extreme resilience against um, actions that the environment might do to your system. So uh, in a sense, it's very protected against the environment. On the flip side, it actually doesn't wanna want you to talk to the system anymore. So the only thing you can really do is some topological moves. You can braid it around each other and, and hopefully by doing so, you can uh, do operations. So to, to answer the question, we have set our sight on that particular approach to build a topological quantum computer. The experiments running right now in Copenhagen and Delft, the two experimental groups that are now part of Microsoft, they try hard to build a small computer at this point. Once we go beyond a two qubit gate, which will be a crucial step in that roadmap, um, there, there seems to be no limit from, like from a physics point of view. Um, there's nothing that on the theory side prevents us to build a large-scale computer that needs only very little error correction. And then when, when, we, when we scale up that machine, we could reach um, a practical quantum computer quite, quite quickly and we have to worry about actually compiling into that, that architecture. So that's it's kind of our approach. Definitely an engineering challenge. It's an interesting bet from challenge. Microsoft, that's yeah, for big sure. Challenge. So I suppose that's all we really have time for on this. So I've got a couple of minutes for questions if people want to throw their hands up um, before somebody cuts me off. So, yeah. Uh, I've heard it said a number of times that the basis for Microsoft's quantum computers, uh, these quasi-particles, um, haven't been proven to exist. And yet I've also heard it be said that there is no explanation other than these particles exist for why these... Uh, machines are doing what's happening right now. So I was wondering if we can sort of officially get to the resolution of this question right here today. Um, is it true that the Microsoft machine essentially utilizes an effect that there is no plausible explanation other than you have these quasi-particles? It seems like it. It was first observed in 2012 by Leo Kovenhoven in Delft. Back then there was a big debate and there were several papers written that had stuff like smoking gun evidence, yes or no in the title. I think by now there's so many signatures of this, these so-called Mariana zero modes that have been observed that people kind of settle on, yes, this is a zero mode, this can be used to encode a qubit. The questions are now of a different nature. The questions are like, can we actually do it in a meaningful way so that we can operate on it? Um, can we actually couple several qubits together? So that's kind of where we move to at this stage. And there is a white paper out there, it's on the archive, that lays out a particular architecture, how we can scale. But um, kind of on the engineering side, there's several really tough problems that, that, that we have to, to solve. But I think, I think it's pretty much settled that we have observed the Majorana zero modes, yes. I should do what Alan did and get all the condensed matter theorists and experimentalists in the room to stand up, because there's no <laughs> condensed matter theorists yes. or experimentalists on this panel. Take it with some rock size, <laughs> grain of salt. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, Philippe. Yes, you, you spoke about this idea of uh, classical emula emulators of quantum computers. So c could you tell what is the state of the art? How many qubits can be emulated presently with some computers? Real ones. The answer. What about you? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, it depends on the computation. Um, so for, uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on the depth. It depends on the layout and the, the actual specific thing that you're trying to do. Um, for the quantum supremacy stuff, which Alan alluded to um, earlier, um, which I've worked on with Google, I know that the best classical simulators can, specifically for those classes of problems, get to around 45-ish qubits. Um, and there are real problems in going too much further than that because of RAM limitations and other things. Um, 
But for different classes of problems, you can go a lot further. Like you can get, a, you can simulate a lot more qubits. But wasn't there the Nature paper from IBM about factoring an arbitrarily large number with two qubits? <laughs> yeah. uh, quick advertisement for QBranch. Uh, we uh, have developed an emulator that uh, looks at a particular hardware system that has been deployed uh, on premises at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Uh, the purpose for that is to get the emulator into the hands of their developers inside the bank so that they can start to just broaden their awareness and understanding of how quantum computers work and what the applications might be. Um, that particular emulator uh, does at least 30 qubits, but again, it's very dependent on the problem. Um, and we'll continue to push that state of the art as we go forward. Okay, I've got Jason standing up. <laughs> can, I, can I have one more? Very quick one. One more. Quick question for Matt, because you brought up that you guys are looking at uh, potential financial applications. Is that just because D.E. Shaw is an investor? Or, I mean, what do you guys see as, you know, are the big al algorithmic capital allocators investing in this, or? Yeah, the big reason, and we can say this, uh, on a comparative basis, um, algorithmic traders, principal traders, have the ability to be really, really supple um, in terms of, uh, kind of being a solution looking for a problem, whereas in most cases you need to identify a problem and find a solution to it. So again, there's this creativity thing that, that quantitative traders look for to try to get an edge. And uh, you can look at problems both uh, that would be run efficiently on annealers and circuit model machines that could be translated into trading strategies. And so I do actually think that there's an argument to be made. For, forget about the underlying math and whether um, you can mathematically argue that there's a particular advantage to a, a particular industry for quantum computing. But I, but I think that the uh, sort of the psychology of principal traders and their, their sort of creativity and, and uh, flexibility makes them like an obvious, uh, an obvious place to explore implementing this technology, yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks again, and please round of applause for all our panelists.